version of you. Get your mind around that. In other universes, you don't exist at all. In one universe, Germany lost World War II. In another universe, Germany might have won World War II. Okay? Parallel universe is infinite. That's what Spider-Verse is getting at. Now, in Bandersnatch, this is the, if you're as old as me, you'll remember the Choose Your Own Adventure novels, yeah? Well, imagine a Choose Your Own Adventure novel into a movie where you get to choose your own adventure as you watch the movie. So you're on your iPad or your smart TV and you get to choose what happens. It's an interactive TV show. So in Bandersnatch, there are dozens of different plot lines that you get to choose along the way of how the characters will interact. Everything from what's he going to have for breakfast, right? Frosties or Fruit Loops to some really, really serious questions like whether he commits murder. Now, lots of plot lines in Bandersnatch, hopefully not spoilers, they'll end up with dead ends and you kind of get to go back and re-choose some of those choices. So one plot line... Now, the main character, he realizes that he, he actually realizes in the movie that he is controlled by you. Like, talk about going meta, huh? You know what that means? I only just recently found out what that means. I'm really cool. Um, anyway, um, he realizes that he's being controlled by you, and he's looking around, and he even realizes that there's something called Netflix, which he doesn't understand what it is, and somehow it's controlling him. That's crazy, isn't it? And that plot line ends up with him killing his dad. Right? Spoiler alert. Sorry. In another plot line, one major character talks about that multiverse theory. They're linked, okay? This is also about the multiverse theory. And he basically says it doesn't matter if you kill him or not. Because in another universe, he will still exist. So kill away. How crazy is that, yeah? I raise those two uh, movies because they both raise, I think, I mean, they're entertainment and all that kind of stuff. I don't know how seriously you take it, but they raise important questions. And the question is, how can you know if anything is real? Like, how do you know you are making real decisions every day that actually matter? Do you actually have free will? Or are you and I controlled by factors that we can't control, like genetic makeup? It's kind of determined the choices you make. Your upbringing has determined your likes and dislikes, your social conditioning. Do we actually have any real choices? And how about if this multiverse thing is true? If it is true, and people really do believe it's true, scientists do, some do, then really doesn't matter what I choose. Really doesn't matter. Because whether I live or die, whether I save or kill someone, whether I help an old granny across the road or I punch her, whether I'm faithful to my wife or cheat on my wife, because in another universe, I will have made a different set of choices and life goes on. Do you see? Does life... Do choices, does reality have any meaning? Why am I asking those questions? What does it have to do with the question of whether God is real? C.S. Lewis, uh, you might know, wrote the Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe series. Uh, he was a philosopher. He was an English professor. And he was a Christian. He said this famously. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see the sun, but because by it, I see everything else. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying for him, God being real doesn't just make sense. God being real makes sense of everything else. And so today, I want to suggest, humbly, for you to think about, that if God is not real then there should be a whole, whole host of other things that we ought to question as well. 
And I think Spider-Man and Bandersnatch raised some of those good questions. Questions that, if God isn't real, we should be asking. You see, if all we have is a, what I'll call a closed universe, nothing beyond matter, physics, chemistry, biology, nothing beyond what you see, and there's no soul, there's no spirit, there's no creator, there's no designer, there's no life beyond death, all we have is a closed universe, then we are just products of time plus chance with natural selection at work. If this is all true and this is a closed universe and God isn't real, my question is how can we be sure that anything is real? I want to take you on a journey through that question. But first, let me bust some myths. Now I'm bust three myths to begin with. The first myth is that I can convince you that God is real. And you're thinking, what? Why am I here? Isn't that you're trying to convince? No. If you're here and you have doubts or you're maybe convinced that there is no God, I am not going to be able to convince you otherwise. That's myth number one. I just can't. I won't be able to. In the same way that if an atheist were here in my place, the majority of you who believe in God won't be convinced otherwise just by an atheist talking for the next 20 minutes. And I'll tell you why that is. It's because that's not how beliefs work, right? It isn't. I mean, we all like to think that we all believe things because we are objective, neutral, scientific observers. And so we change belief when there are better objective evidences. And once the evidence is there, we will all abandon our form of beliefs. And ch- no, that's not how it works. That's not how beliefs work. I'll give you an example. I personally believe in gun control. I like Australia's gun control laws. I also believe in vaccinating my children. And probably the majority of you do have the same beliefs about gun control and vaccination. Have you ever had a conversation or debate with a conservative American who is a member of the NRA, the National Rifle Association? Or have you ever had a debate with someone who is a strong anti-vaccination, anti-vaxxer? If you've ever had a debate with them, you will know (laughs) that just by presenting objective evidence doesn't really make a difference, does it? You see, all of our beliefs, including belief in God or not, is a combination of lots of factors and not just our intellect. It is our minds, but it's also social. We believe a lot of things because of the people around us. We believe a lot of things because of practical reasons. It works. We believe a lot of things because we experience. All of them throw together form our beliefs. So here it is. Myth number one, I'm not going to convince you today that God is real if you don't believe it because there are no knockdown arguments that I could give you, no convincing proofs that I will give you today that will change that. So let's just set our goal much more modestly. My goal today is to start a conversation. That's it. Start a conversation. Get you to consider an alternative. If you aren't sure if God is real, that's fine. Let me just raise another set of doubts. Right? You doubt that God is real. Great. That's fine. Let me raise another set of doubts that if God isn't real, maybe you should have these doubts as well. That's all I want to do. So that's myth number one. How about myth number two? Myth number two is, can you go to the next slide for me? Because this isn't working. Myth number two is that religion is dying. Now that might surprise you because didn't I just quote statistics about, well, yes, in Australia, in the UK, in the US, in a lot of uh, pre-Christian, used to be Christian countries, 
non-religion is on the rise. As I said, statistic 7% in five years. But you need to see that worldwide, religion is actually on the rise. There are people who say that the 21st century will be more religious than any other century previously. There is a research center in America called the Pew Research Center. Very respected because it's non-partisan, right? It's non-religious. It's a social research center. And they projected that between 2010 and 2050, basically the first 50 years of our century, that religion all over the world will be increasing. In Africa, in Asia, in South America, belief in God is actually rising, not falling. And it's projected to continue. Now, along with this myth is another myth. It's called the God of the Gaps myth. Have you, God of the Gaps, uh, this means people used to believe in God because they couldn't explain a lot of the natural world with science. So there are gaps in their knowledge. And as the world you know, became smarter and science and more educated, the gap got smaller and eventually there was no more gap and therefore there's no more God. Now, that's called the God of the Gaps theory. And That's a myth as well, because here's a problem. The problem is, as the world has gotten more educated, it's actually becoming more religious. Right? That's the reality. That's the statistics. So I'll give you an example. In China, a lot of you may be from China or know of people from China. Since the 1950s, it has been atheistic, communist, secular. And since the 1980s, it's also opened up to the Western world, science, education, all of those standards, some of the biggest universities, some of the best universities in the world are in China. More people are getting educated, and yet, let's just talk about one religion, Christianity has been rising in China. Do you know there are more people in China who go to church on a Sunday, a Christian church on a Sunday, than there is the population of Australia by about four times? Just over 20 million people in Australia, probably about 100 million Christians in China. It's rising. And here's the other problem with the God of the gaps theory. If there really is a God of the gaps and as people become more educated, they stop believing in God, well, then you would expect that no highly educated scientists or intellectuals would believe in God or be a Christian. And that is certainly not the case. So C.S. Lewis was one example I quoted before. His friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, Uh, don't go there yet, Um, Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, they were both Oxford professors in English and literature, Um, John Lennox uh, is an Oxford mathematician, and Francis Collins is probably the most well-known geneticist, physician, scientist, who headed up the Human Genome Project and mapped the human genome, and he is a Christian, and look at this uh, slide now, and look what he says, for him, you see, being a scientist doesn't squeeze God out. Instead, he says, I believe God did intend in giving us intelligence to give us the opportunity to investigate and appreciate the wonders of his creation. He is not threatened by our scientific adventures. You got that? So that's our second myth. Religion is dying, and along with it, the God of the gaps. What about our third myth? The third myth is that only believing in God requires faith. So if I don't believe in God, I don't need faith because I have science. Belief in God, that's your faith. That requires faith. In the 1920s and 30s, so we're looking at 80 years ago, probably not a lot of you were alive back then, but anyway, in the 20s and 30s, confidence in science and logic was really high. 
And people believed and pushed for the idea that if you were to know anything truly, true knowledge is only that which can be tested and backed up by scientific evidence or by logic or mathematics. That's the only true knowledge of anything has to be scientific, logical, mathematical knowledge. So it's not just religion and belief in God that began to be chucked out because you couldn't scientifically prove that. Also, the arts and the humanities, the social sciences, history, all of that got into question as well because you can't prove those things scientifically either. Now, at that time, I mentioned him before, C.S. Lewis was working as an English professor at Oxford University. And you would think that C.S. Lewis would be feeling a little bit threatened by that understanding of knowledge. Because he was both a Christian and in the arts, English academic. Right? Both his beliefs were not things that fell into that true knowledge is only scientific knowledge understanding of the world. He should have been threatened, but guess what? Lewis was not threatened at all because, and he was one of the first people to really publicly say this and get it, He could see that the very claim that only true knowledge was scientific knowledge, that claim was itself a lie. Why? Let's see if you can figure it out. Look at this claim. The claim is this. The only true knowledge is scientific knowledge. Can you see the problem with that claim? That for a couple of decades, everyone in the upper academia, scientists all believed in. What's the problem with that claim? I'll tell you what the problem is. And C.S. Lewis was one of the first to see it. How do you know that that claim is true? Does that claim come under its own burden of proof? In other words, can you test that claim by scientific knowledge? Can you take that claim and experiment on it? In other words, does the claim itself meet its own conditions? And the answer, of course, is no. Because you have to assume that claim to be true in order to prove that it is true. Do you see what I mean? In logic, if you've ever studied classical knowledge, it's the fallacy, it's the problem of begging the question. You can't assume something to be true in order to prove it's true. That claim is not proved to be true, it is assumed to be true. You see, for science to operate and operate well, faith is required. Now, I'm not talking about blind faith, otherwise science would be bunk, but it is faith Nonetheless, for science to work, you have to assume a whole lot of things that you can't itself prove. You have to assume it's true before you can prove anything. You have to assume, for example, that we live in a real world and that it is an ordered world and that our faculties of observing the world and thought and reasoning are not going to lie to us. You have to assume all those is true before you can even start to do science. That's a type of faith. Right? You have to assume that we don't live in a world like, for those of you who are older, you remember the Matrix. That we are not all somehow plugged into a machine and everything you see is just a simulation. How can you know for sure that that is true, by the way? You can't. You can't. You have to assume that we are living in a real world. Or assume that there's not a parallel universe or that we're not in a parallel universe where actually the laws of physics are actually not steady. Um, and that human beings are not rational, and that sense perceptions are not reliable. You have to assume all those things are true in order to do science. And I want to suggest to you that that is a kind of faith. It's reasonable to assume these things, but it's faith nonetheless. Right? And it's not just science. 
It's not just science, and here's where the myth is a real myth, isn't it? Because there's lots of things in life that we take for granted, we believe in, and it's based on faith. See, a lot of people say, I don't believe in God because I cannot see God or interact with God or talk to God. But you know what? There are a bunch of things that every single person here, atheist or not, you believe in that you cannot see, that you cannot touch, that you cannot scientifically experiment on. A whole host of things. And so back to my introduction before I started myth-busting. If God isn't real, I want to suggest to you that maybe those things that you take on faith and believe in aren't real either. And so now I'm going to take you on some reality check questions. You might have noticed at the front of the bulletins you got when you came in was the first question that I'm actually going to ask you to think about. It has to do with love. How do you know love is real? You see, for a moment, I want you to assume of this closed universe. Let's just all become closed universe people, right? There is no God. There is no spirit. There is no creator. There's no life after death. This universe is closed. Matter is all there is. You boil everything down and it's physics. We are a product of blind forces of evolution, but there's no intelligent design behind it. We are guided only by natural selection, survival of the species, the instinct to survive and pass on our strongest genes. That is it. Okay, let's all assume closed universe. Let me suggest to you that if this is true, and if this is genuinely what you believe or are tempted to believe, if this is your faith, then let me take it a step further and suggest to you that there are three things you should probably also stop believing in. And the first one is love. Do you believe in love? Because how do you know in a closed universe if love is real? Because in a closed universe, love is actually just a combination of chemistry and neurology, brain stuff, and psychology, conscious states. It's hormones working on your brain, giving you a sense of comfort or joy and very strong feelings of comfort or joy in order to help you survive better. But that is all. That is all love is. Just chemistry, just neurology, just psychology. So those of you who are parents, the love you have for your children is just chemistry, neurology, and psychology. Those of you who are married, the love you have for your spouse is just chemistry. Your parents' love for you, your friends, all of that is just that, nothing more. Because that is what love would be in a closed universe. Now, some people genuinely believe that. Genuinely believe that that is all love is. Now, if that's the case, then whether I love my wife and then fall out of love with her and love another woman really doesn't matter because it's just chemistry playing games with me. Should I sacrifice my life for my children? Well, I have an instinct that wants to, but maybe I shouldn't because, you know, maybe they should sacrifice stuff. Why am I putting them through school and working so hard to put them into private school? Not that my kids do, but do you know what I mean? Why don't they sacrifice for me? It really doesn't matter because love isn't real. Do you really believe that that is all love is? Okay, that's the first reality check. How about this one? Do you believe in human rights? Do you believe that there are human rights that every single person should have? 
whether they are able or disabled, whether they are adult or children, whether they are male or female, whether they are smart or dumb, whether they are black or white, whether they are gay or straight. Do you believe that there are intrinsic rights to every human being? I assume that maybe 100% of you do. Where does that belief come from? Because if we live in a closed universe and human beings are at the top of natural selection evolutionary chain, then let me ask you, why should the disabled have rights? Why should babies or elderly have rights? Quite frankly, we are overpopulated. If you carry a defective gene, why should you have rights to have children? Shouldn't we be preventing you from having children, passing on your... Scary, isn't it? Evolution and natural selection means we should purify and maximize our gene pool, right? So if this is a closed universe, why do human rights matter? Where does this belief come from? Third, do you ever have wow moments? Sorry, I thought I'd put it in ways that we probably understand. Have you ever experienced a wow moment? You know, moments of such wonder and awe that you almost feel in touch with the divine. For you, it's maybe music. You listen to music, a piece of music, and it just moves you. Looking at art or a, a painting or even scenery or literature does that to you or sport does that for you or traveling does that for you or falling in love is your wow moment or for me, it's eating food. Have you, have you ever eaten something so good you feel like if I'm not sitting down, I think I will just collapse because it's so wonderful? That's my wow moments. Or maybe it's actually a religious experience. You've experienced, somehow, you might not believe in God. You might be an atheist, and atheists talk about wow moments, and they don't know how to make sense of it. But somehow they get and feel like the, the, the divine has just reached and touched them. Let me ask you, where do these wow moments come from? See, if you're in a closed universe, closed universe people will say that, well, they're not real. These wow moments are not real. Evolution maybe has given us these wow moments, a bit like love, to help us survive. Religion can be explained in that way too. Religion, you might think, is rising. Well, it's because it's an evolutionary necessity. We need to have religion to survive, but it's not real, in a, you know, but we need it in order to survive in a harsh world. And so wow moments are like love. They're just brain chemistry, neurology, psychology. Now, I'll give you two problems if you believe that. Number one is if you really believe that it totally cheapens art and music and beauty. Beauty is no longer beautiful. Because, let me give you an example. The next time you see something beautiful, like a beautiful painting, right, or you appreciate a beautiful piece of music, if you reduce everything down to just physics and chemistry, so you're listening to your favorite Mozart or BTS, I don't know what you're into, um, and you think, I'm feeling wow. Actually, no, can't happen with BTS, so it's just Mozart. Um, I'm feeling well, but really Mozart is beautiful only because of certain combination of frequencies of musical notes going through the air that my ear is picking up and my brain is interpreting and then my hormones are somehow getting... If you start thinking that way, it no longer is artistic or beautiful, is it? In order to appreciate beauty, you always have to switch off those things. Because beauty is more than that. Beauty is a wow moment. So that's the first problem. If you believe in it, it cheapens art and beauty. I think art and beauty then become non-existent. The other problem is, 
You know what? Closed universe people also tell us, on the other hand, that while those things, the wow moments, aren't real, that our ability to reason and think are real. Our ability to study and think and do science is real. So they say all those wow moments and love and all that kind of stuff, it's an illusion to help you survive as a species. But science, rationality, reason, they are real. Now, my question is, why would you say one is real and not the other? Why can't both of them be unreal? I mean, if evolution has given us those things as illusions, like love and beauty, simply to help us adapt to our environment, then maybe our reasoning capacities are also illusions to help us adapt. You can't be skeptical, skeptical of one and not the other, but if they're both not real, then the whole enterprise of science falls apart, doesn't it? You see, most atheists I know do not live in the world of bandersnatch and question whether everything is real, whether decisions are real, whether they, morality is real, whether why right and wrong are real, whether love is real, whether anything we do is meaningful. But here's my question back to you. If there is no God, maybe we should at least be asking those questions. If this is a closed universe and all there is is matter and evolution and natural selection, how do we know if anything is real? So where to now? I already said I cannot convince you that God is real. All I've done probably is just raise more doubts and you're sitting here thinking, okay, I'm not even sure if I'm real now. I just hope it makes you at least doubt your doubt, okay? I have not made the case at all that you should believe in God and especially the God of the Bible, the God that Christians and I believe in. So the remainder of the time, I'm not going to try and achieve all that. It's impossible. I will just leave you with a thought and I'll finish at that. In fact, I don't want to just leave you with a thought. I want to leave you with a person. And if you have your bulletins open, you'll see I'm up to point number three. See, in history, there have been two sets of special people, two sets One set of people impacted the world and founded great schools of thought and movements or religions. So Moses with Judaism, Muhammad with Islam, or, you know, you might think about Plato or Aristotle with Western thought, uh, Buddha, Einstein, George Lucas. Had to sneak Star Wars guy in there. Right? So that's one set of people. Another set of people claimed to be divine. And there's, not, there's a number of them. They claim to be God in flesh or somehow God appearing, you know, with us. Two sets of people. Now, none of the people I named in the first set there actually fall into the second. Yeah? Moses and Muhammad would have thought it was blasphemy to claim to be God. Buddha especially explicitly denied that he was divine. And then most people you know in the second set who claim to be divine aren't in the first set either. Why? Because they tend to be kooky, crazy cult leaders. Yeah? But you see, Jesus Christ was uniquely in both groups. His life was so incredibly appealing and powerful that one-third of the world today claim to follow him. One-third of the world. But they follow him not just for his thinking and his morals and his teaching, but they actually worship him as God. As God. I want to show you that passage that we read right at the beginning before I started. It's on the screen, so you don't have to turn to it. But look what the earliest followers of Jesus, the man who wrote this, was one of his disciples. Look what he claimed. Let me read these verses again. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, which our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. John, the writer here, look what he's saying. He's saying, I'm giving you an eyewitness account. I was there. His account is of Jesus of Nazareth, the one he called master for about three years, and friend, a real person in history. But notice he also calls him the word of life, yeah? He also calls him the eternal life. You see it there. Because he is saying, coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus will bring life. And later on, he also says it will bring fellowship. Fellowship is a christian word, which means deep relationship, deep sharing of lives. But it's fellowship, he says, with God. And God becomes your father. That's how deep the relationship will go. That's what this person, Jesus, the word of life, brings. And we don't have time to go into it in detail, but in short, this is the whole purpose of God Becoming a man in Jesus, says the Bible, is so that by dying on the cross for us, Jesus, God, might take our place and pay for the wrongs in our life, all the things we've done wrong, all the ways we've treated Him and each other. He'll take it in our place so that He can heal what's broken between us and God and bring us back into fellowship with God the Creator, relationship. And that all results in joy and life, and meaning, and purpose. Okay, those are big claims, aren't they? Big claims about Jesus, and I am not going to test them here. I can't. Don't have time to. But, remember, I have more modest goals today. The point of today is just to invite you to find out more. Hopefully, I've raised some questions, begun a discussion, even internally in your head, that makes you think, I should find out more. Keep an open eye, mind, find out more. And if that is you, let me say, the next three weeks, we're going to be dealing with three other questions for God. By the way, these questions, we didn't come up with them. We surveyed, I think, 160 people, and the top four were these. Next week, we're going to look at what is the meaning of life. All right, keep coming back. Sunday's 11 o'clock. And if you can't make 11 o'clock on Sunday's 4 p.m., we do it again at Bankstown. But I also want to say fresh, the video you saw just before I came up, fresh, coffee, dessert, chatting, smaller group, any questions you want to raise, we want to hear your opinion, as you hear, uh, you know, what the Bible might say, that is the best forum to investigate more. So can I just say, if you've got five free Tuesday nights, starting the last Tuesday of February, all throughout the Tuesdays in March, come along, this could be the... Five weeks, it's free. It could be the best investment of your life to think about matters that I've raised today. Check it out. Fresh, details are on the cards you got when you came in. Or at the very least, if you've come with someone today, a friend who brought you, come and chat to them, ask them, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe that God is real? 
or come and talk to me or Marshall you've met. There's also Pastor Dom, any of our church leaders. We'd love to chat to you. But that's all I'm going to do today. Just say, find out more. Do something other than just come today if I've raised some of these thoughts. And let me just close then with one final quote from Francis Collins, that leading geneticist. He, by the way, he wasn't always a Christian. He, like a lot of uh, scientists, started off as an atheist. Why did he become a Christian? This is what he said. Here was a person, he's talking about Jesus, with remarkably strong historical evidence of his life, who made astounding statements about loving your neighbor and whose claims about being God's son seemed to demand a decision about whether he was deluded or the real thing. After resisting for nearly two years, I found it impossible to go on living in such a state of uncertainty and I became a follower of Jesus. Now that may not be you, but if you're willing to keep an open mind, come back, come to fresh, I think that's a pretty good start. I'm going to get the band up. We're going to sing again um, as the band comes up. By the way, um, you'll notice that we, we're singing a lot. Uh, we want to keep a lot of what we do today, what we do every Sunday. Christians love to sing because, and it's not because we all have good voices. Quite frankly, we don't all have good voices. You can look at the person next to you if you feel like that's them. Um, but it's because we have something to sing about. And even in the non-Christian world, you go to a footy match, you go to your favorite concert. Singing is just one of those very human expressions of things we love and enjoy and have wow moments about. So you'll find that we'll sing. Um, and you may not be able to sing with us. That's totally fine. Just listen, have a look at the lyrics that we're singing. And hopefully, because there's enough people singing, it's mainly going to sound okay. Okay, is that enough wasting time? Good, it is. Okay, let's, um, let's sing. Let's stand and let's, let's sing. <laughs>